when you consider that the the combined revenues of the big four sports in America, so NBA, uh, NFL, Major League Baseball and hockey, is roughly equivalent to the annual revenues of the cardboard box industry. It, it tells you a couple of things. One, one is, well, <laughs> that's an incredible that, statistic that I've never yeah, amazing, heard before. Isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, amazing, isn't it? So, <laughs> elite card. Are we talking elite cardboard? Or are we talking recreational cardboard? <laughs> <laughs> grassroots, grassroots cardboard. Um, so, I mean, it tells you a few things. One is like how small sport is. One is how big cardboard boxes are. But it also, more importantly, tells us about the asymmetrically large role that sport plays in the fabric of the society because we talk about sport. You know, there's there's back pages of, of every newspaper in the world devoted to sport. Um, the same can't be said about cardboard boxes. So it means that it, it's got great meaning to society. Hello there and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance, whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. This week's guest is David Joyce. So David is a physiotherapist by trade. But over the last decade or so, David has really carved himself out as a strategic thinker, an advisor and developer of teams and and leaders. So he's learned his craft at the coalface of numerous different high performance sports systems based in Europe and in Asia as a practitioner. But his curiosity has led him to undertake some fascinating research in the area of strategic decision-making. And from this basis, he's developed some real critical insights, informed by breadth of reading and discovery and application about how we make decisions. And as a consequence, David advises numerous sports systems and businesses around the world through his own consultancy. David is a super shrewd thinker who stretched my own thinking through this conversation. So I learned loads. But to many of you also, David is the co-editor of the book High Performance Training for Sports. And I'm just acknowledging that now because it's worth bearing that in mind as you listen to the discussion. Because David is still embedded in high performance sport, yet he has followed his interests. He's spread his wings and developed a unique set of skills and insights that he's applying well beyond sport. So, David, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. No, not at all. Um, absolute pleasure. And I can't wait to kind of dive into some of the insights that you've accumulated over the, the, the decades. But could you start me off by just, just tell me a little bit about yourself, home, professional training. Um, how did you get where you are today? Well, the, the most important role that I have is that I'm a, a husband to Kay and a dad to two kids, Matilda and Rory. Um, who are only little, and so they're making their way in the world, and um, and so that's probably my biggest and most complicated job for which I'm <laughs> ill-equipped. <laughs> um, Decision making then, in parenting, right? Straight into yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, professionally, I'm a uh, a strategist and a decision making coach. So what that means is that I work, some my company is called Synapsy, um, and the, that word is a somewhat made-up word, but a synapse, as you know, is is a connection between two nerves 
Um, and synapsing, the concept behind it is, is making new connections and drawing um, information from one area to another and, and bring that together and, and shedding light on a problem in a new way, which effectively is what we try and do. And so about 40% of our clients will be in sports, so sporting organisations, sporting clubs that need reviews, that, that need help with developing and delivering their strategies in various different guises. Uh, about 40% are in corporate business that are doing the same sort of thing, so strategy and, and decision-making. And about 20% of our portfolio is actually in executive coaching, which, as we were saying just before the call, is a, a lot of it is strategy and decision-making, but more on an individual level rather than a, a, an enterprise or an organisational level. Um, prior to that, I'd, I'd spent 20 years on the coalface in professional and elite sport, um, both in Australia, the UK, Spain, Turkey, China. Um, my professional training initially was as a physiotherapist and I did that for a, a very long time um, and then um, was kind of, I loved it, I loved the problem-solving aspect of it, but what I I realised that it wasn't a complete picture of performance. So I, I did a lot more work in strength and conditioning and, and that gave me a much better sense of the a number of different facets of, of athletic performance. Um, but then after a, a while, I started thinking, well, how can I have more impact and, and bringing all these sorts of things together? And that's when I started my journey as a performance director and a performance leader, um, which has culminated in me doing an MBA a few years back and and that's very much the world that I inhabit now is, is bringing teams together to make good decisions rather than uh, getting athletes to squat heavier, run faster, lift heavier things um, like I had done for, for a long time. So that's that's kind of the Cook's tour, I suppose. Yeah, great. And so um, do you miss that cold face aspect? I'm just curious, you know, you, that... I've taken a similar sort of journey where you start taking on management roles, leadership roles, and mm. you look back a little bit. And I suppose certainly when I was, I was working in the system, I, I started looking back and think, oh, I miss some of that, those, those day-to-day interactions. And I, I, I indulge myself and do many of those now where, where I just keep myself fresh a little bit. Do you, do you still get involved? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I dip in and out and I'm, and I still make sure that, my knowledge is relevant because I think it's really important to be able to to get onto the dance floor, so to speak, and be able to and to to really feel what's going on and, and understand you know new new developments and all those sorts of things because I think that's really important for for leaders and people in sort of our position to to, to understand and have empathy with the people that are going through it. I think that's really super important. Also, I was, I was going to say, so there, there's elements that I miss. What I don't miss is the short-term nature of, of um, sport, and, and I understand why it is short-term. I totally get it. Um, I Elite sport and professional sport winning on the weekends has been very good to me over a long period of time, and I would like to think that I've been good to it. But my horizons have shifted a lot further now, um, so it's not... Winning on the weekend is not quite as important to me now. Um, my purpose and my my mission is to be able to to prepare the path for the next generations to to have a fantastic experience in sport. Um, and whether that is getting more women into high performance coaching, um, whether it is um, making sport in general a better place to, to be more inclusive, um, and being able to design design and architect the future such that sport is a, is a really relevant thing for the populations uh, is kind of that's my that's my main driver now um, but you, you you touched on a really important point is about what what feeds you so that stuff feeds me but I still love um, elite sport getting to watch it it's just it's really nice to be able to see it from a different lens rather than having to get phone calls at midnight about a scan result that's just come in and those sorts of things. That's the stuff I don't miss. Yeah. Okay. Some, some amazing motivations there to sort of help 
try or at least contribute to or at least make an effort towards making sport a better place perhaps rather than okay who's who didn't tidy up <laughs> those, those yeah. sorts of micro moments where where you, you sort of delved into the detail and so can you remember that sort of point then so as you started to move towards more management and I, I'm assuming then that the decision to do an MBA also required you to start focusing on a particular topic for your Keystone project, for example. Um, mm. Did you did you remember the sort of point when you started thinking, I, w- I want to start exploring decisions in more depth? It's a, it's a really interesting um, question because I don't think there was a crucible moment. What, what I do think is that I kind of... Um, I've been looking at MBAs for a very long time, like a decade or so, but I, I, I guess that I had got to the point in my career where I was still challenged, like I was, I was working in a role where I was well-paid, high-profile, all those sorts of things, and I was still being challenged, but the challenges were the things that I've been seeing for the last 15 years, and I just kind of felt that I wanted to exercise a different part of my brain, and I wanted to scare the hell out of myself and and be uh, in a room with way smarter people um, and people with a different aspect or different look on life. Um, and when you when you consider that when you consider that the the combined revenues of the big four sports in America, so NBA, uh, NFL, Major League Baseball, and hockey, is roughly equivalent to the annual revenues of the cardboard box industry. It, it tells you a couple of things. One, one is, well, <laughs> that's an incredible that, statistic that I've yeah, never heard amazing, before. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? So, <laughs> elite car- are we talking elite cardboard or are we talking recreational cardboard? <laughs> <laughs> grassroots, grassroots cardboard. Um, so, I mean, it tells you a few things. One is like how small sport is. One is how big cardboard boxes are. But it also, more importantly, tells us about the asymmetrically large role that sport plays in the fabric of the society because we talk about sport. You know, there's there's back pages of, of every newspaper in the world devoted to sport. Um, the same can't be said about cardboard boxes. So it means that it, it's got great meaning to society. Um, and, you know, I, I, I still wanted to be involved in that because that's who I am, that's, that's me. Um, but equally, when you recognise just how small it is, I started to think, well, maybe there are other people and maybe there are other professions in life and in other industries that have solved the same sorts of problems that we're trying to solve and what can I learn from them? So I've always been a bit of a, I've always been a bit of a thief in terms of my ideas. Like I've always tried to cherry pick ideas from lots of different people and put my own spin on it and then take it forward. Um <clears throat> And so that analogical learning, I think, is, is helpful. Um, and, and that's been the driver for me, to be honest. Like, I've just really wanted to, to learn about different aspects of the world and how we can solve different problems in, in new ways. So I don't think there was that one crucible moment other than potentially, potentially when my daughter was born. I, I, uh, this might be a little bit of retrospective coherence, but... When my daughter was born, I, I do remember having a bit of a shift thinking, okay, right, so it's less about me. What is what does it take to be a good ancestor? And that's kind of that might have been a bit of a the start of the the move towards doing what I'm doing now. Hmm. Yeah, okay. We'll be we all become philosophers when we have children, don't we? In that sense of just yeah, oh, no, why am I here? Um Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, a couple of couple of ideas there that that I'd love to sort of pick up on. Um, that short termism that you mentioned of, you know, is that the sort of pressure that you're seeing and sensing that that actually limits our decision making? That that idea that we've got to be busy bees, we've got to we've got to do more, we've got to bounce from one interaction straight into the next without necessarily processing it or preparing for the next one. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people 
doing, doing work, but not necessarily sort of shifting the needle, making pronounced changes to the environment, to the interactions in the team dynamics, uh, to the sense of I'm going to make a different type of decision or a different recommendation based on perhaps similar sets of information that I might be receiving, whether it's data or subjective, mm. because I feel that there's a necessary to be a change. I've got that sense that in sport, there's um, this huge pressure just to do and not necessarily think too much. Yeah. Uh, Steve, it's a really interesting point because I think there's a number of different ways of approaching it. One is I don't think it's particularly well modelled and we need people to model that bit that you've just outlined. Um, the second thing is it's absolutely not unique to sport, not unique to sport. So um, the ambidexterity of thought required to be able to concentrate on operations and doing what you do well that's got you to the point that you're at um, and, you know, really being granular about what you need to do next, that's critical because if you don't do that, then you get beaten or your competitor gets the market share or whatever it is. Um, so that stuff's really important. But the great organisations and the great leaders are able to have this ambidexterity of thought, which can balance that with being able to get up onto the balcony and have a look more at a strategic lens about what the future is likely to entail. Um so in theory, that's what a CEO should be doing. In theory, that's what a board should be doing. The reality is, in many cases, they get dragged into the business as usual stuff. They get dragged into the ops, the daily grind. So I think there's, there's a couple of things there. One is that it takes work and takes conscious effort to have this metacognition and, and be able to extract yourself out of the operations. Um, and we need people to model that um, so people understand that that's what good looks like. And then finally, there's the, there's the piece about incentives. And in sport, we're incentivized very, very heavily to win the next match. Like everything is set up about that because there's enormous disincentives to, to miss, whether it's funding, whether it is the, the, the media criticism that you cop um, because you didn't beat, you know, your opponents on the weekend. Um, it necessarily breeds this myopic view. Um, and I've got real empathy for it. I totally get it. I totally get it. It's just that that short-termism is counterproductive in the long term. Mm. So I, I would certainly um, support that idea of, the, the the businessman going from one thing to the next. I was remember doing some. I was over in the US um, working with a, a large consulting firm. Probably quite. I would I would sort of they would say determine themselves as as quite elite in their approach. And I was talking about high performance habits and helping with them with the sort of structuring their well being so that it can enable performance. And it came out that they go one, from one interaction with a, a company, so assessing the needs, uh, proposing a set of work, and they go straight onto a plane, and then they go straight to the next one. And I said, okay, what do you do between the the consultations? And they, I said, well, no, I just, just might write up my notes. Okay, but do you debrief? Do you debrief with somebody else? No. So, oh, you don't debrief? Wow. Okay. <laughs> and I suppose that that in itself was was fascinating because that, that's got that corollary with uh, with elite sport where you're getting straight on the bus and you're you're, you're oh. maybe flying or you're, you're um, getting to the to the next game. But, but equally, there was a sense and you hinted towards it there. I think it's really important was that the comment was we're not allowed to. Uh, we don't have that uh, mm. freedom. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because it's not a case of maybe the the staff member, the workforce creating that space. It does require an element of leadership and um, the business case from the core system, the management to protect that and require it because of the return on investment in that sense. Yeah, that's right. And certainly in the in the corporate sense, 
um, in the corporate world, it, it rests very heavily on billable hours. Yeah. And that reflection is not a billable hour in most cases. Um, the client is not going to be too happy about paying for um, reflection time. And so that eats into bottom line, which is, you know, we get we get back to the incentives bit. So, yeah, no, I, so I agree. It's, it's not what we would call good practice, but I also understand why it is like that. Um, it takes a brave organisation to be able to go, okay, right. So if we want to be the honeypot for the world's elite talent, how do we do that? Rather than just payment, how, how do we have a really good structure around our employees um, such that people want to come and work for us and want to stay working for us? Because that's a really, really important nuance is you can attract people by salary, but we know that that's not the way that you can, that you should be looking to retain people, um, particularly once you get to a salary past a certain level. Okay, so so we've danced around the subject a bit there, um, but I think some of those are important about setting the conditions to allow people to be taking or, or, or being more deliberate and intentional around decision making. And I'm quite conscious that, and and I spotted one of them right, that you you you've got this terminology down, you've got this um, expertise in there, retrospective coherence, where you're sort of checking and and, and playing and working with these biases and heuristics and and factors already. So I'm conscious that anyone who might be listening, that oh okay, I'm opening a door here, and there's a territory that. That means that I've got to try and learn a little bit more. I've got to to get in there and and understand how decisions are made. Um, have you got uh, that sort of simple version of of a good decision? What's the difference between a sense of a decision that that we can look back and 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 say there's there's good process, there's good uh, sense around that versus not? Hmm. Mm. So the, I think the important bit there is that what we're trying to do is improve our decision-making with the with aim that that improves better decisions. So frequently what we will do is that we will look at the outcome of the decision and use that as the determinant of whether it was a good decision. But you and I will not both have countless examples of where a really poor decision um, and poor decision-making process has luckily got to a good outcome. And equally, there's been really good decision-making and decision um, process that has led to a bad outcome. Um, So I think that just looking solely at the outcomes just too blunt, far too blunt. We see that all the time in sport. So a good decision if I'm interpreting your question correctly, a good decision is one where the process is appropriate for the decision to be made at hand. So, you know, having uh, checking your biases and stakeholder engagement, all those sorts of things, really important in one form of decision-making context. But if you're in a burning building, you ain't got time for that. So... Uh, that would be the wrong decision-making process. The right decision-making process there is to get the hell out of there, to listen to your instincts and go. So I think the the nuance, Steve, there is understanding the context that you're in. So if we're... So I, I, I quite like the Kinevan framework by Dave Snowden, and if we look at a simple decision-making environment where there is a, a really obvious link between cause and effect, that is the realm of best practice. In sport, we talk about best practice far too loosely. It only really applies in a simple context where we know that there is one way, one, um, one best way of doing this thing. Um, think about calibrating a force plate or pumping up an, uh, a punctured puncture tyre or something. So there's a really clear link between what you what you need to do, the steps you need to do, and and the outcome. Um, I would posit that in sport, that situation, I would posit in, in life, that situation 
doesn't exist that often. It, it certainly exists, which is why we have checklists. Um, but in complex environments, that's not what we see. Okay. The next is the next is complicated, and that's it's still there's a there's a, a link between cause and effect, and it's a bit like if you've got a um, uh, a motorcycle. I don't know how to make a motorcycle. I don't know. Maybe maybe you do, but maybe you don't know how to make a motorcycle. But in theory, what we should be able to do is take the motorcycle apart, um, panel by panel, nut by nut, um, pedal by pedal, um, throttle by brake, and put it all in a line and put it all together again. Um, so there is cause and effect there. There is a linear chain of things that you can do to build something and that's the realm of experts um and that definitely exists so if we think about um uh, acl injury and surgery for that there are a number of different ways that you can do that there's not one best practice way there are a number of different things you can do there's parts of the surgery that is best practice like scrubbing your hands before you go into the operating theater but the overall journey is complicated rather than complex. But then we step into complex, and that's the realm that most people and absolutely leaders sit in most of the time. And that's where there is a where, where it's a bunch of separate but inseparable parts. It's um, it's an area where we need to where, where we can't see prospectively the link between cause and effect the only way we can see the link between cause and effect if we ever can is through the rearview mirror not through the windshield so that's ret retrospective coherence so the, the sport example will be um, um so and so got injured and then you look back and you say there was a bit of a spike in um his or her sprint meters and they slept poorly the night before and then three nights before that they were on the booze and all those things added up and now they've got a hamstring injury okay you can't possibly put that together beforehand but you can see it potentially in in um in the rearview mirror and that's the area of of um, experimentation. So the right decision-making process there is to run a whole heap of safe-to-fail pilots and see what, what sticks and how, how you, um, uh, where you're getting traction and moving forward there. And it's where you need to check in your biases um, and, um, and, and lean on analogies. So we're trying to get more women in high-performance coaching that is a wicked, complex problem. Who else has tried to make progress in this area? Um, well, let's look at mining. Let's look at defence. Look at um, surgery and see what we can take from those things and apply it to sport. And then the final area is, is chaos. And the best way to ex explain that or the best analogy for that is, is COVID, of course. And you say, right, we've got a sense that there's something... Um, we don't know about in China. It doesn't look good. We're going to shut the borders. So it's a it's a real clear authoritarian way of making decisions, um, wartime strategy, that sort of stuff. Um, and that's good, but you can't make decisions like that forever because the population rebel. You know, people feel oppressed. All those sorts of things. So a long answer, and I apologise for that, but the, I guess there, there is no one way to make a good decision. There is, um, there's lots of ways, and it depends on the context. One of the biggest things that is important is having a, a diversity of experiences and a diversity of, of perspectives on an issue, which is why um, having a diverse group of people around the decision-making table is so important as well. So long answer to mm. a very simple question i apologize no 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 not at all um no that's a that's a super comprehensive answer and um there's a lot to unpack but maybe if i could just try and translate that a little mm. bit with an applied example that that will might lead me into another question and 
that is when I'm sitting down with a, an athlete or a coach or, or a business and I'm understanding what their problem is, understanding what they need, doing that needs analysis. And um, I know for a fact, perhaps as a consequence of my experience, but as soon as I start thinking really early in the process, oh, I know the answer to this one, oh, I've seen this before, then I'm about to make a mistake um, I'm about to prejudge a situation. <laughs> and, and I know because I've gone through that process and I thought, oh, here, here you go. Here's the advice. Here's the recommendation. Here's what the, the next scheme of work needs to be. And it hasn't necessarily landed. It hasn't, mm. hasn't addressed the, the problem because I haven't been thorough enough in my, my process. So that's, that's me just, I guess, recognizing that we need to be quite sentient about this we need to have mm-hmm. a almost out of brain moment of assessing how we're getting on perhaps rather than just following a, a, a process or, or being quite instinctual in our um in how we we work um so that's just that's just my reflections or an example from that um uh, look i think i think that's exactly right steve but there there, is, there are times where relying on your gut on your instincts is is 100% the right thing to do. Um, The problem is that many people rely on that um, far too often without without actually thinking, is that the right process for making this decision? And we know that the right time to rely on your gut, and this is the work of Gary Klein and others, is when the context is directly replicable to other experiences that you've had. So if you've seen exactly this a thousand times, um, you've got experience, you've got that tacit knowledge and relying on your gut is possibly going to be more reliable than anyone that's just, it's completely novel for. And that's the value of experience. But you also the second condition is that you're always getting feedback and you're being able to update your knowledge. Mm. Where people fall fall down is this overconfidence bias, and this is what Kahneman and others will talk about, is that the, the biggest problem with relying on gut is that you it breeds this overconfidence bias that says, Oh, I've said it all before. I'm gonna we're gonna do this because you know it reminds me of something that happened um, when I was working in Finland in you know, 2007, um, without actually having the humility to understand whether the co- the context and the, the situation in Finland in 2007 is anything like the context that you're in now. It may just remind you of it, but it may not be directly translatable, and that's where we get errors of judgment. So, um Instinct and, and um, gut instinct and, and, and gut feelings have got really powerful places to play, just so long as it's not the only um, club that you pull out of the bag. Mm. So can I try and try and get a few um, metaphors or um, similes for those those different layers of decision making so cause and effect i kind of think of the windmill you're not going to get the 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 mill turning unless you've got the wind um the bicycle example works quite nicely i remember i'm previously hearing the frog and the bicycle that that sort of idea of of we can deconstruct the the bicycle and we can put it back together but we can't do the same for the frog um so that that being the complicated and the complex uh versions and yep. maybe I'm just thinking of a swarm of flies for that chaotic where maybe I've just got to get out of there or you know, there's something extreme <laughs> that needs to happen. Um, but besides those sorts of metaphors that might help me remember those, how do you help people recognize those situations and differentiate them so that they might make different types of decisions or use different steps and processes to make a better decision? Yeah, so... We, we kind of touched on it. So the simple environment is one where there is a recognised best way of doing things and that's something that you can identify with a checklist. So you should, in a simple environment, you should be able to go do this and then this and then this and then that um, and people should be able to follow it. And if you can do that, it's it's reasonably safe to be a, 
um, a, a simple environment. The problem is that we can get overconfident in a simple environment because we think, oh, it's all pretty good. You just got to do this and then that and the other thing. Um, but then it very quickly drops into chaos. So it won't, it's not true that it would go from simple to complicated. It okay. can very quickly go off an edge to go into chaotic. So if we see what's happening in the share market fairly recently, um, like chaos, um, if we see what happened in the share market uh, last year with GameStop and and some of the um, the meme stocks, that's that's it's chaos. It's gone from something which does which makes sense ordinarily. You put your money in your in these sorts of things, and then all of a sudden something comes from left field, and people don't know how to react properly to it. Um, so a complicated thing would be where there is. Um, there are recognised ways of doing things. So there's there's good practice. Um, th this is the realm of experts. So if you've got experts opining on a particular problem um, and that they know what to do, um, yeah, it's a fair bet that you're dealing in a complicated environment. Um, the, the danger here is that experts can often drown out the wisdom of the non-expert and you, you need non-experts to come in and ask naive questions. And so experts will go, yeah, no, no, I, I know boats. That's all right. Um, I'll, I'll fix this um, without uh, someone just chicken challenging them going, why, why is it that you do it this way? Yeah, you need like an intern. So <laughs> and then, oh, an so <laughs> exactly, exactly right, 100%, 100%. And, and I think it's actually one of the things that allows me and, and probably yourself, Steve, to go into environments where I actually don't know the the end product. Like I could go into a, I don't know, a pet food company and and do some strategy and decision making there because I can ask naive questions. Whereas if you're so if you know everything about pet food, you think that there's nothing new to learn. So you need there's a real danger of experts as well. Mm. They're, they're, they're wonderful. We need to listen to them. We need to listen to them more in certain areas. Mm. Um, but having people that can just ask dumb questions, um, and that's my superpower is asking dumb questions. Um, and so I think that's really important. And then the, the, um, the complex space is this where you don't know what's going on, where... There are, there are things that don't make sense where you try and put a technical fix into a, a complex problem and it can have a really asymmetrically bad uh, outcome. So an example of that is in 1935, Australia had a problem with cane, um, cane beetles and a guy said, I know what we do. You just introduce these cane toads and they get rid of the cane beetles. Hmm. Um, so technical fix to clearly a complex problem because it's an ecosystem. Um, and the reality of what has happened since is that we now have 200 million cane toads wrecking the agriculture of, of this country in Australia. So um, it's it was a imposition of a technical fix on an adaptive problem that has, has caught, wreaked havoc there. So um, I, I think of I think of complexity as being a bit like a rainforest, Steve. So where there's there's separate but inseparable parts. So if you're in an environment where you go, well, if I add one component, it changes the look of it completely, that's a complex environment. So um, uh, improving um, female representation in just about anything is complex, wicked. Um, there's no one answer because you've got to look at um, paternity laws. You've got to look at child minding. You've got to look at um, power structures. You've got to look at incentives. You've got to look at all these things are interacting. So when there's lots of interactions, that's a complex thing. And then chaos. Chaos is when you're getting lots of noise, lots of demands on your attention, all at the same time sensitive um, 
was all in a time-sensitive manner. So you've got the media coming at you, you've got um, reports coming in from this location, that location, you've got people wanting your, your attention on this, that and the other thing. That's a chaotic environment. And so they're, they're kind of the ways that I teach it and go, right, well, how do we recognise this bit? Um, okay. Uh, and, and then, you know, using the, the appropriate template, not template, but um, decision-making structures to go from there. Okay. So, so that's, that's really useful to differentiate and put, provides that little step for people to, to at least be able to assess and, uh, and get a handle on the type of circumstance context and therefore the decisions that they might need to make. I'm going to try and ask you, well, I'm going to ask you a difficult question, but I'm keen to, to make this practical for people to get started with this. Do you have a framework that, that enhances decisions, all decisions that people can kind of get started with? Um, I know it's an ambitious question, sorry, but... Yeah, um, no, 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 I'm, no. Because it's, it's yeah. that... I'm, I'm drawing a parallel here with, for me, the sort of passion that I have around craft skills where people yes. learn the technical skills and then they kind of suddenly start realizing oh, it's not what I do necessarily. It's how I do it. Oh, and they open this door and suddenly it's, Oh, I didn't realize there's a whole land there. I've got to go now learn and, and redeveloped how I deliver. So that's the kind of background and the motivation behind what could be an overambitious question. So yeah, yeah no, the question it, was it the framework that might enhance all decisions. Yeah, so um, it's it's definitely an ambitious question, but it's a good one. Um, so a bit again depends on the context that you're in, but let's just take the the run of the mill decision where you have decent evidence or decent information, and it's not terribly time sensitive. Okay, so if we if we give that as a starting point. Um, so I like I like to know. Um, sometimes we feel like we're getting hedged into making a decision, but sometimes we can just sit with a context and a, a, or an, um, a situation, and a decision doesn't actually need to be made right now. So one of the questions I ask myself is, <clears throat> does the risk profile change? So an example might mm. be. Um, uh, does the risk profile change for me having a heart attack if I ate um, an extra slice of um, creme caramel this evening with dinner? Mm. And the answer is probably no. Um, so I don't need to, you know, change anything I'm doing. I can continue eating. If, however, it, it, there's a chance that, it's going to clog up my arteries here and now um, and I'm going to have a heart attack, I'm now forced into a decision. How much do I really want this creme brulee? So the risk profile has, is different. And is that changing? Um, so I think that's a really, really important and understated thing to, to know is does a decision actually need to be made and at what time does it need to be made? Right. Um, so the next thing is, do I have the information that I require to make a decision? How important is this decision as well? Because that, that, that importance is very important because it, that gets down to this concept of maximising and satisfying. So let me give another food-related example. So for, a, for my wife's birthday, we might want to go out for dinner and I will research the restaurants in the area and I want to know uh, what's the rating on this one. Do we like this type of cuisine? Does she like that? Is it fancy enough? Is it too fancy? Um, what's the menu like? What are the ratings? What are the reviews? Getting all that information because I want to maximise. I want to have a really good experience for her. But there might be a time like tomorrow night you go all i need is a restaurant that's open so my minimum hurdle is that it's open so that's called satisfying 
So good so enough. Is, yeah, good enough. And I will take the first option that is good enough, that meets my minimum hurdle. So that minimum hurdle might be that it's open or it might be um, we had pizza tonight so we don't want it to be pizza tomorrow. So our, the hurdle is now open and not pizza. So how much information do you need? How important is this decision? Do you need to maximise it or are you happy to satisfy this? I think is, is important. Um, uh, we've talked about the, the context of whether it's a complex, complicated situation, so that's really important. Um, and then probably a, another couple of things would be, do I have enough diversity in my thought process here? Do I need to shop this around? Have I stated the problem in the right manner? <clears throat> um, and who else do I need involved in the decision-making process here? Because um, I've got a prime narrative, which is the way I see the world, which is a product of who I am, my culture, my, um, my all my experiences. You've got a prime narrative, which is exactly the same from, from the same sort of... Um, lens of, you know, what's your background, what's your your experiences, what's your heuristics, these sorts of things. Um, so a decision that I make might be enhanced by getting your take on it, but it might also be enhanced by getting someone who's much older or much younger or a female or, um, or LGBTI or um, Afro-Caribbean or... Um, uh, in a wheelchair, whatever it is, because they can give a different look on the problem because they've got a different world experience. So that's the that's effectively the the case for having greater. It's one of the cases for having greater diversity in boardrooms and in coaching structures. Um, and then I guess finally is um, can the decision be evaluated? Do we know what good looks like and can we go, right, if faced with this again, would we make the same decision? What, what parts can we tease out and improve for next time? And then overlaying all of that is this, this concept of, of all, our, our, all our biases which I've got a slightly different take on, but, um, you know, there, there's definitely some cognitive flaws that we have um, or cognitive, not flaws, we've got some cognitive limitations that sometimes um, getting more information and, you know, using technology may be able to help us. So um, that, that would be a bit, that, that would be a framework that I would coach uh, executives with, yes. Okay. So... So I've, I've made some notes here then. So time-based and linked to that being the risk profile, um, yep. what information you've got or if you've got enough information, how important the decision is, the diversity of opinions and thought that are going into that, and if it's evaluatable or if it's something that you can, you can assess yeah. and, and therefore almost reproduce. Um, so, so that's quite useful as a list, even if somebody starts just thinking and, and trying to ingrain in, into their habits, one of those that, that just slightly nudges their thought process and being a bit more intentional going forward. Can I pick up on that, that, um, that idea of diversity? Because, and, and I suppose there are probably at least a, a, a couple of prongs to this around that biases that you you reference about how maybe we can narrow our thinking or our tendency and proclivity to to think in a certain way but equally a lot of the decisions that we're making um, are in teams and require teams to operate and therefore it's not a transactional i'm presented with information i'm looking at it on a spreadsheet and therefore i've got to make a prescription or recommendation to that person in front of me and it being quite a transactional thing from which you could enhance your decision making with those factors you've just made now i've got a team who who are operating in a quite a fluid environment and there's hierarchies there's uh, time uh, on the team sheet there's there's, you know, the influencer, there's the decision maker as a part of it. Um, 
I'm I'm probably opening up a, a can of worms here, but that that sense of decision making in teams and how people can can manage that in a way that means that you're making a good decision um, rather than necessarily just sort of I suppose falling back into poor habits of hippo. Uh, the the highest paid person's yeah. opinion, yeah. and we just yep. do what they think. Um, so, how do you maximize yep. how do you maximize decisions in teams? So, it's a fundamental question that you ask, Steve, because we do need to be able to recognize the difference between making a decision when it's just rests on you, and also wanting to harness the the, the diversity of thought. Um, I, I use I use a framework called the Sadie Framework. So, um, so that's basically the S stands for synthesise. And the, what we're trying to do there is, is collect the information, synthesise it, and then formulate a proposal. So this is, we're talking about in teams now. Um, and that's really vital for um, engagement, alignment and influence. So you want people to feel like they've had an input and that you've heard them, right? So the next... Next letter is A, so authority. And these people are consulted um, if, and they've got veto power, but only in their area of expertise. So, for example, um, you want to make a decision and the, um, the HR specialist says, I'm sorry, but that is against the law. Okay, we've got, they've got veto power. So that's really important. You've got these experts that come into the room and be able to provide input on a particular area. But you wouldn't want the HR specialist having veto power over the colours you used in your marketing campaign. So it is very delineated and delimited to the area of expertise that the authority person's got. Um, Then we've got engage. And these uh, these are the people that, you want to engage with the people that have to live with the decision that you're making. So uh, these are the people that have to implement the impact of your strategy, your decision. So if you're making a decision about um, the the time that a team would travel uh, overseas, um, it's it's helpful to ask the, the kit man because they're the ones that are going to have to be unloading the bus at 2 a.m., Right, so you want to—they don't have veto power, but you want to listen to them really, really carefully because they'll give you looks on the problem that you haven't assessed or that you haven't seen, and they will also be able to provide you with really important feedback. And they can be your most powerful advocate or your most rigid um, uh, adversary as well. So we've got uh, synthesize, authority, engage. Then you've got decide. And so that's the person who ultimately makes the decision. And that's really important is that if you, de- if you decide by committee, you'll often get, an, get to an impasse. So um, frequently it's, it, well, it is always better to go into a decision-making process knowing who has ultimately got the final say, right? So that's, um, that needs to be clearly articulated. And then you've got implement. So S-A-E-D-I, I's implement. And these are the people that are responsible for implementing the strategy or implementing the decision that, that, um, uh, that you make. So there's, there's a number of different ways of, of or a number of different steps, I should say, of doing this. But this is the best way that I know to be able to get people feeling like they've invested, they've been engaged, they've been listened to but it still gets down to one person making the decision based on all the information that they've heard. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it does. I haven't heard that one before. Um, it's convenient that my auntie is called Sadie. Um, so that's helpful. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I named it after her. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It's slightly different spelling, but that's fine. Um, and if I just riff off that, I think I'm hearing most circumstances it's, AD, <laughs> authority, decide, implement. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I come in with my opinion, I've made a decision and I want you to get on with it. When actually that synthesis of opinions of, of that health check of, 
of a team of has everyone spoken in the room um what are your thoughts what are your concerns what are your hopes what are your ambitions and that sense of listening and opening uh, the the argument in a non-judgmental way um but the e bit i think is is something that so many people miss out that engage of mm. you know here's the strategy for you to go and work in the olympic stadium you go and do your thing go and go and hurdle go and jump go and do whatever you want um but I, this is what I think you should do, as opposed to how do you want this to look? How do you want yeah. this to feel? Um, you know, is this going to be a bulletproof plan of a hundred things, or is it going to be three things that you can focus on? That tone and tenor of of the strategy that this is how I want it to to be, or I'm the I'm the person with perhaps the most information about this, or the person who's got that that um, that nuance. Uh, I just think it's so vital to to engage with the, those people, really. Um, so I love yeah, that. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that, Steve. But the, 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 the slight nuance is that on occasions, 80, so authority, decide, implement, yeah. um, may in fact be the best thing to do if you're in a highly pressurised, time-sensitive environment that's chaos. You, okay. you won't necessarily have the time or the luxury of getting the S and the E um, uh, you would like to think that you've done your business continuity planning beforehand, so you've got a bit of a sense of it. But let's not kid ourselves. We are we are sometimes in environments where you've just got to go. Um, I, I appreciate there's lots of people here. I've got to make a decision. But this is what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so I think that the okay. the Sadie Sadie framework is really good if in a non time sensitive environment. Okay. Nice. No, that's that's a useful differentiator. Um, can I can I sort of step uh, into a different world here and and think a little bit about how our physical, mental, emotional state can affect our decisions? I think a lot of the work that that I do with uh, business executives, particularly, it's not about improving their power output on a bike. It's about improving their daytime cognitive performance. And whilst I'm not wrapped up in the, the nuance of, of the, the, the detail of their work, I can enhance their daytime processes by improving what they eat, how fit they are, their sleep patterns, for example. Um, what's your sort of sense of, of where this is at in terms of how we could potentially enhance our decision-making? Because it affects us all, doesn't it? Everything you know decision making is so important about we sit down at our desks and think about what am i going to do today or i might react to a certain uh situation and that means that that person's less likely to have those inputs it's so vital that we enhance that decision making by our physical state yeah it, so i'm of the view that it's the single most important thing that humans do so um you, you want to be on track to do it the right way, I think. Uh, we know that sleep and exercise are the two greatest metabolizers of stress hormones, um, so they're the best sponges that we have, um, and that a good sleep and a good walk refreshes your decision-making, your cognitive abilities. We, we know that. Um, so this is where... The, the, the corporate world, the business world, can actually take an awful lot from the, um, the, the sporting or the performance world and go, right, well, what do you know about sleep? What do you know about nutrition? There is a really strong link between the gut, the gut microbiome and mental health, for example. And so we, we know that the the quality and the type of food and the timing of the food that you have enables you to make better or worse decisions according to what you do. I know for my own self is that um, when I don't eat before around about 10.30 a.m., I make much better decisions in the afternoon. I'm much clearer in my head. Like that is noticeable for me and I'm, I experiment on myself all the time. So I know that that's the best way for, um, for me to operate, but that's not the same as everyone. People are different. So there is a, there's a lot that um, decision makers can take from 
the world of high performance and sports science for about what we know about those fundamental things, sleep, exercise, and the the food and the, you know, whatever we, we ingest. So, yeah, I agree with that. Um, that's just reminding me of the uh, hungry judge effect, uh, the Danziger yes. study in 2011. Yeah. So if people don't uh, remember it, I'll try and get this right. The, the, the study was done uh, looking at parole boards and judges were the judge the the re- chances of returning uh grant and granting parole was pronounced in its effect on where it occurred during the day so there's a high chance you could get parole uh, i think it was something like 60 plus percent first thing in the morning and then it went down to to zero just before the break and <laughs> and then it went back up to maybe not not quite as high, and then went down to zero just before lunch. And so it had this sort of zigzag approach of... Uh, and the idea was that it was hunger that might be affecting decision. But then there was also a little bit of a tangent on decision-making fatigue as well, in that sense of having to weigh up information. And that's that's potentially quite useful for people to be thinking about uh, you know, maybe they've they've spent the whole day processing, computing, engaging with people, and it's weighed on their capacity to make decisions. Um, and so maybe positioning some of those key decisions at the best time of the day that suits a quality decision, rather than when they're doing that later, it's late at night, or they're tired, or they've, they've, they've had a bad day, or uh, they're emotional, uh, in that sense, too. Yeah, I agree with that. And Daniel Pink's written a fantastic book that uh, looks at that very, very topic. Yeah, right. Oh, look, there's so, there's so many different um, angles on this. And, you know, if you've got a sense of where um, where the next layer, where the next sort of phase of our thinking on this is? Uh, I think it is how do we incorporate... Um, uh, computer augmented decision making into okay. what we do i think that's probably it and so that the, the processing power of of computers is much greater than um than what humans have got for certain things not all things um and i i'm not as pessimistic as some people are in terms of the, the robots are coming to take over because i think that currently uh, there are there are things that robots can't do that us humans can do. So I think that the the most superior methodology we've got in a non time sensitive environment, or sorry, a non urgent environment, is to be able to harness the computing power that we've got on hand, and then get the contextual nuances from the, the human brain and, and how we embed that into our decision-making is going to be the next frontier, I think. Yeah, okay, that's, that's fascinating. And, and, I, and I think that, that that presents itself an opportunity for practitioners, uh, professionals going forward when actually it also presents a, a challenge in that that will mean change it will mean that perhaps they don't do the, some of the number crunching themselves. That was the bit that they did and looked busy doing um, and therefore justified their pay packet. It might actually unlock um, a lot more creative and freer and innovative, quite exciting aspects of interpretation rather than necessarily, I'm just the one who does the GPS numbers, for example. Yeah. I'm, I'm making a flippant I, example. No, but I, I agree with that. So... Anything that is, anything that is, would be described as routine, repetitive, and boring, will be able to be done by machines. Um, which, so the, the the pessimistic side of that is they're going to take over. The optimistic side is, well, that just frees us up to do amazing other things. Uh, and I'm firmly on the optimism camp. Amazing. Look, I've really appreciated uh, hearing your insights, David. I've, I've found it fascinating. And um, like I say, I, I, I'm, I, I'm cognizant of this area. 
I sort of play with it a little bit, but I'm also conscious of, of being able to open that door for people a, a little bit so that they can safely step into this without feeling overwhelming and uh, it feeling like they're doing a thing. It, it's sort of embedding it into their practice, but it not necessarily uh, feeling as though it, it, it kills it, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, thank you so much, David. Really appreciated it. Um, where, where can people follow along for, for you if they want to uh, dig into this a bit more? Uh, no, well, first of all, thank you very much, Steve. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed the conversation. You've asked some really challenging questions, and I've I've actually been asked questions by you that I've not been asked um, in a podcast before. So that's been great. Um, so I guess LinkedIn is probably a, a good one. So um, if you type in David Joyce and sign up, soon, you'll you'll find me. Um, I'm not huge on Twitter, but I'm, I've got a presence so at David G Joyce. Um, my books uh, are freely available wherever you buy books. Um, so that's high performance training for sports and sports injury um, prevention and rehabilitation. And um, yeah, and so the and synapsing.co will be uh, getting refreshed and, and, and built over the, the coming months. But if people wanted to email me, a good way to do it is, is um, through synapsing. So that's hello at synapsing.co. Amazing. Brilliant. Well, that's, uh, I'll put all those in the show notes. So once again, thanks so much, David. Fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen i really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation now we've got plenty more to come so if you'd like to support and champion us then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on spotify itunes stitcher youtube or wherever you tune in you can also give us a follow on twitter instagram and linkedin all the links are in the show notes so in the meantime have a great week mm-hmm.